Welcome, and thank you for joining us for today's CME podcast. PrimeMed podcasts are dedicated to providing on-the-go clinicians with pertinent, evidence-based primary care content that won't take too much time out of your busy schedule. Information about CME credits and faculty for today's podcast can be found within this activity's landing page on primemed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Be sure to also go to this location in order to claim your CME credits after the program. Thank you and enjoy. This is Dr. Martin Kwan, Professor of Clinical Family Medicine, David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Thank you for joining me for this podcast titled Bacterial Vaginosis, Meeting the Clinical Challenge. The learning objectives for this podcast, one, discuss the pathophysiology of bacterial vaginosis, two, diagnose bacterial vaginosis, three, prescribe treatment for the patient with bacterial vaginosis, and four, manage the patient with recurrent bacterial vaginosis. How common is bacterial vaginosis? Vaginitis is one of the most common gynecologic disorders seen in clinical practice, and vaginal infections are the most common cause. Bacterial vaginosis is the number one cause of infectious vaginitis, ranking ahead of candida vaginitis and trichomonas vaginitis. The CDC estimates a prevalence of 21.2 million for bacterial vaginosis in women aged 15 to 44 years. What is the pathophysiology of bacterial vaginosis? Bacterial vaginosis is best viewed as a vaginal dysbiosis, a microbial imbalance of the vaginal ecosystem characterized by depletion of the normally dominant hydrogen peroxide-producing lactobacilli particularly Lactobacillus crispitus and Lactobacillus gazeri, and overgrowth of certain anaerobic and facultative aerobic organisms, specifically Gardnerella vaginalis, Prevotella species, Mobilungus species, Mycoplasma hominis, and Adipopium vaginae. Although Although sexual transmission of some agent or component likely plays an important role, in the development of the dysbiosis, the occurrence of bacterial vaginosis in sexually naive individuals argues against this being the sole mechanism. The formation of biofilm composed of microbial cells encased in a complex polysaccharide matrix that adheres to epithelial cells in the female genital tract is commonly seen in patients with bacterial vaginosis. The formation of this biofilm, which seemingly provides a functional safe harbor, if you will, for the organisms involved in bacterial vaginosis, appears mediated by specific strains of Gardnerella vaginalis and enhanced by the presence of Adipopium vaginae. Biofilm formation is felt to play an important role in patients experiencing recurrent infections and also provide a possible link between the presence of bacterial vaginosis and the development of adverse pregnancy outcomes, 
as well as the link between bacterial vaginosis and the development of pelvic inflammatory disease. What are the obstetrical complications associated with bacterial vaginosis? The presence of bacterial vaginosis during pregnancy has been associated with the development of premature rupture of membranes, chorial amnionitis, preterm labor and delivery, amniotic fluid infections, postpartum endometritis, endometritis following cesarean section, as well as the development of neonatal sepsis. In light of this, should one screen for bacterial vaginosis during pregnancy? The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force has reviewed the evidence on several occasions and each time failed to find definite benefit. Suffice it to say that studies up to this point have shown only variable benefit and that antimicrobial treatment of bacterial vaginosis in pregnancy has not been shown to universally reduce adverse pregnancy outcomes. As a result, in 2020, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force gave routine screening for bacterial vaginosis during pregnancy a grade D recommendation, recommending against such screening in asymptomatic women at low or average risk for preterm birth. For women deemed at high risk for preterm birth, the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force gave routine screening for bacterial vaginosis a grade I recommendation, citing insufficient evidence to assess, to assess the balance of benefits and harms of the service. How is the diagnosis of bacterial vaginosis made? Although regarded as the gold standard for diagnosing bacterial vaginosis in research settings, gram-stained vaginal smears are not felt to be practical or available in the clinical setting. Thus, in clinical practice, the diagnosis of bacterial vaginosis is generally made by fulfillment of the AMCEL criteria. The AMCEL criteria requires the patient meet three of the four following clinical criteria. One, presence of a thin, milky white homogeneous discharge that coats the vaginal wall. Two, an alkaline vaginal pH exceeding 4.5. Three, detection of a amine-like odor after exposure of the vaginal secretions to 10% potassium hydroxide solution, that is the so-called positive WIF test. And four, presence of clue cells on the saline wet mount. Clue cells are simply vaginal epithelial cells with a stippled or studded appearance arising from the adherence of numerous coccobacilli on its surface. Obscuration of the cellular border is a major diagnostic feature of a clue cell and serves to readily differentiate it from a normal vaginal epithelial cell. Point-of-care tests are available, including the OSOM-BV blue test, which detects vaginal sialidase, which is an enzyme associated with the presence of bacterial vaginosis, as well as the availability of molecular diagnostic tests. 
molecular diagnostic tests include both DNA probe tests as well as nucleic acid amplification tests. These tests are more costly than saline microscopy and classic diagnostic methods, and thus their use is generally advised only when microscopy is not available. What options are available for treating bacterial vaginosis? The 2015 CDC STD guidelines favored one of three options for managing bacterial vaginosis, either oral metronidazole, 500 milligram twice daily for seven days, metronidazole gel, 0.75%, one full applicator intravaginally once a day for five days, or clindamycin cream, 2%, one full applicator intravaginally at bedtime for seven days. Alternative management options also, also listed by the CDC included tinidazole, a second-generation nitroimidazole agent at a dose of two grams orally once daily for two days, or tinidazole, one gram orally once daily for five days, clindamycin, 300 milligram orally, twice daily for seven days, or clindamycin ovules, 100 milligram, intravaginally once at bedtime for three days. Secnidazole, which received FDA approval in 2017 for treatment of bacterial vaginosis, is the only single-dose treatment option available. It is prescribed as a two-gram packet of granules, which the patient sprinkles on yogurt, applesauce, or pudding, and consumes within 30 minutes. Although more costly, evidence supports a single dose of zeconidazole being comparable to a seven-day course of oral metronidazole in terms of efficacy. Should the sex partner of the patient with bacterial vaginosis be treated as well? Although bacteria associated with bacterial vaginosis can be found on male genitalia, data from clinical trials indicate that a woman's response to therapy and her likelihood of relapse or recurrence are not affected by treatment of her sex partners. As a result, current CDC guidelines do not recommend routine treatment of sex partners. Nevertheless, Women with bacterial vaginosis have been found to be at increased risk for the acquisition of some sexually transmitted infections, specifically HIV, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and herpes simplex virus too. In light of this, current CDC guidelines recommends that all women diagnosed with bacterial, with bacterial vaginosis be tested for HIV, and other STDs as well. What is the role of condom use in the management of, bac of bacterial vaginosis? Although the cause of the vaginal dysbiosis remains unknown, and whether or not a sexually transmitted pathogen or factor is involved remains unclear, nevertheless, the CDC recommends that during treatment for bacterial vaginosis, Women should be advised to either refrain from sexual activity or to use condoms consistently and correctly during the treatment regimen. 
For patients with recurrent bacterial vaginosis, the use of condoms is also felt to be of value for reducing the rate of recurrences. What options are available for treating recurrent bacterial vaginosis? Recurrent bacterial vaginosis is common, with 20 to 75% of patients reporting a recurrence within three months of treatment. Although intuitively, it would seem prudent to prescribe a different treatment regimen in managing the patient with such a recurrence, studies suggest that prescribing the same treatment may be comparable in efficacy. For patients with multiple, which is usually defined as three or more recurrences in a year, evidence-supported options include following a recommended treatment regimen, prescribing chronic suppressive therapy with metronidazole vaginal gel, 0.75%, one full applicator twice weekly for 16 weeks. In a study by Sobel and Associates, twice weekly, Metronidazole gel resulted in a 57% reduction of risk of recurrence while on active treatment, with the reduction of risk falling to 30% 12 weeks following discontinuation of the suppressive therapy. A second option calls for adding an agent designed to actually disrupt the biofilm safe harbor thought to be responsible for recurrent infections. After treating the patient with a recommended treatment regimen for bacterial vaginosis, one then would prescribe a course of intravaginal boric acid in the forms of either a 600 milligram vaginal capsule or suppository on a daily basis for 21 days with the expressed intent to disrupt the biofilm and then follow it with twice a week metronidazole gel for 16 weeks. When using vaginal boric acid capsules or suppositories, though, it is important to warn patients that oral use of boric acid is toxic and that they need to take precautions to keep it, as well as other medications, out of the hands of children. In addition, boric acid is a teratogen and its use during pregnancy needs to be avoided. Is there a role for probiotics? Studies evaluating the clinical and microbiologic efficacy of probiotics, primarily intravaginal lactobacillus formulations to treat bacterial vaginosis and thereby restore normal flora have generally produced mixed results. In fact, a 2010 Cochrane Review concluded that there was insufficient evidence for or against recommending probiotics for the treatment of bacterial vaginosis. A probable cause for this inconsistency, inconsistency likely lies in variations in the probiotic formulation being studied, particularly with regards to the species of lactobacilli used in the formulation as well as their concentration. In this regard, a specific probiotic preparation, Lactin-V, a live biotherapeutic product containing Lactobacillus crispitus in the form of a powder containing 2 times 10 to the 9th colony-forming units, was recently shown to have promise. 
in a double-blind randomized controlled trial published by Cohen and Associates in the New England Journal of Medicine, vaginally administered lactin D for 11 weeks resulted in a 34% lower incidence of recurrence compared to placebo. In addition, they found that this beneficial effect appeared to persist even 13 weeks after discontinuation of the probiotic. Thank you very much for joining me for this discussion of the clinical challenges posed by bacterial vaginosis. Take care, stay safe, and well. We thank you again for joining PrimeMed for today's podcast. Remember to claim your CME credits for the program on this activity's landing page on primed.com slash podcast. That's pri-med.com slash podcasts. Also, be sure to check out all of our other podcasts and primary care activities on primed.com as well. See you next time.